Open your copy of God's Word, Exodus 20, looking at uh, two verses this morning. First two verses which introduce to us the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2. Hear God's Word. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When I first read that, I thought, why would you say that? Why, why would you say these things? Surely these are things that everybody, his first audience, already knew. True words. Everybody knew the words. Why say them? Why go back over them? Um, one of the leadership principles, a lot of people, if you've ever been in a, on a committee, mem- uh, committee member, some board whatever, you see leaders, this is one of the things they do. They first tell you why we, why, where we came from, where we are, and then where we're going in a meeting. Anybody has been in a meeting with me, you know, I like the target. I want to know where we're going. I don't want to waste my time here. I want to get someplace and then get back home. And when I read Exodus 20, I said, that's what God's doing. God said, We're here at Mount Sinai, but let me tell you where we came from. Let me tell you where we are. And through the commandments, I'm going to show you where we're going. God does what they need so that they they see the path that they're on. We all need that kind of leadership at times to get us there. Um, As I I looked at this, you know, I, I, I said, this is an awesome meeting that God sets up. Matter of fact, anytime God arranges a meeting with you, me, anybody, it's because He arranged it. He comes to us. And this is an awesome conversation with God that He lets us see, enter into. And as we look at this meeting with God and His people, I want you to first of all see its intensity. It's like nothing else. I want you to see its intimacy. And then I want you to see the incumbency that comes with it. First of all, I want you to see the intensity of this meeting. Um, Two words, or three, and God spoke. That's intense. And if you don't take time to review a little bit, you'll miss it. Let me go back, chapter 19, beginning at verse 16, and... Just think about being in this crowd of millions of Jews who've just been brought out of Egypt. And this is what's happening. Verse 16 of chapter 19. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in a fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, 
And Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Let me just skip forward. We'll get the Ten Commandments. The meetings continue and jump to chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people, so they've just heard the ten, now when all the people saw the thunder, I'm not sure how you see thunder. I hear it. But with everything trembling, they saw it. They saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet louder, 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 and the mountain smoking. And the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Wow, this is intense, is it not? I mean, put yourself there and you think, God's arranged a meeting to give us His words, His law. And as you show up to the meeting, you start hearing thunder. Till you get to the place you see it. Then there's lightning. And it's so intense. And darkness surrounds the whole place. And yet you see fire come down from heaven and rest on the top of the mountain and smoke continuing to billow all around and the mountain keeps trembling and the trumpet sounds or something like a trumpet. Maybe I, I was trying to think, what, what could this be? It's like, if you've ever been in a tunnel or something and you, you uh, hear a train, oh, oh, you know, and it just gets louder and louder and louder and everything is shaking around you. And God spoke. Those words are huge. Because after he spoke, they say, don't let that happen again. Moses, you go, you go listen. We're going this way. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I would be right in right line behind the people. Yeah, yeah, Moses, you go. I, you, we've all been in those storms where that thunder was so intense and that lightning was so intense. You just shake. And it says that the people were trembling. This is more intense than they can handle. And all it was was God speaking. I hope that somehow we could develop that kind of intensity when God speaks to us. In olden days, God spoke to us through Moses and the prophets. In these latter days, he speaks to us in Christ. He speaks to us through his word how do we develop more intensity in listening to the Word of God? Even if I have to listen to it through a preacher or someone else, Lord, I do not want to take your Word casually. It's serious stuff for God to show up and speak. 
He hasn't done that in my lifetime. Oh, yeah, God speaks to me. God speaks to me through his word. God speaks to me even in the night. But not like this, where I hear his voice as everything around me trembles and shakes to realize the, the huge difference between God and me. That he's so much greater and awesome is a small word to him because he excels it to a degree we, we've not yet begun to fathom. And that's our God. He showed up and he spoke to the people that this is the first time, the speaking of these Ten Commandments, he literally spoke them out. What impression should that leave? I'm convinced I don't think there's any shadow of a doubt. For the first people who heard God speak, it was an unforgettable meeting. Unforgettable. And should it not be unforgettable for us? When we realize in this book, small little book, the God of heaven and earth has written down his word, he gives them to us, that should be, that's unforgettable. That's really unbelievable that God of heaven and earth would want to meet with thee, and then he wants to show me the path to love him and the path to love one another. And he writes it down. Unbelievable. He says, I want that on your heart. I want that unforgettable expression of meeting with God and saying, I want to love him. And I want to know his family. I want to meet his family. And I want to love his family as my own. And that's the Ten Commandments. The first four shows us how to love God. And five through ten shows us how to love his family, to love each other as our own. Um, great attention is clearly given to it. Um, and it's no light consideration. Listen to your own prayers. When you pray... Don't you want God to hear every word? Don't you want to know he's hearing? Sure. When God speaks to us, is it with such intensity that we back up and revere his holiness and his greatness and say no casual word here. This is the God of heaven and earth. He's arranged a meeting with his sovereignty and his grace to speak. It changes the way we come to the Bible when we first remember that God is the author and God is the one who is speaking. It presses on me more and more an obligation to listen. To let, as Ecclesiastes 5 says, to, to let my words be few. And just to watch and to hear and to listen and to meditate and to reflect upon and to think of how I should respond and live with this kind of direction from on high. That's the way this passage starts it's intense. It was meant to get attention, and it certainly does. Now, I want you to see it quickly changes from intense 
and scared slapped to death to intimacy and care and concern. And God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, the first half, I am the Lord your God. That's intimate. He didn't say, I am God. Didn't say that. Could have. But he chose to say, I am yours. And you're mine. Yes, I'm God. But I want you to know a personal pronoun. I want you to know a personal relationship with me. I'm not the God of the Egyptians. Yes, I created all the nations. I am your personal, intimate God. I have chosen you. We know where this is going. You were slaves in Egypt. I chose to bring you out. So these words matter. I want you to know I am yours. Um, that's not so terrifying. We all need to understand our God is a personal God. To have an impersonal relationship with Him would be inappropriate. Our relationship with God should be personal. It should be intimate. And He chooses that kind of intimacy for us by introducing Himself as a God who wants to be united, to be our God. And us be his people. Um, you know, he even, even says that uh, in uh, Psalm 100. A lot of times that's a psalm a lot of people memorize. You are, the sh you, are, you are my sheep. The sheep of my pasture. You are my people. He wants us to know personal terms. You're not nobody to me. You're mine. I'm yours. We're united. We are one. Uh, it just flabbergasts me sometimes when I hear people say, well, you know, what you need to do is you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. And I'm thinking, what? That's not in the Bible. We don't make God Lord. We don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus is Lord. But he's more than Lord. I'm your Lord. He shows up. You don't make it personal. He's already made it personal. In other words, it's his sovereign choice. God did not have to speak with the Israelites. He did not have to redeem them. Did not have to bring them out of Egypt. Could have destroyed them all like he can do with all of us. But he says, of all of my creation, and I created heavens and the earth, and all that's in them, I choose you. And I choose to be yours. To put myself out there. To give myself to you. To come down to a top of a mountain in a fire for you. I come to show you a glimpse of my greatness. And let you know I'm there for you. Why would you have trouble? Why would you have worry? Why would we have concern with a God like that that's showing up to personally be our Lord by creation and by election? He is 
ours. No different in the New Testament when Christ shows up immediately. It is spoken. Call his name Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. He is near. He's intimate. He's not estranged from his family. He wants us to know we are his. That it's our privilege to be in a personal relationship with him. Now, let's stop a minute and think about what makes it personal. Look at 1 John 4, verse 19. 1 John 4, verse 19. First John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. That's the verse. What made it personal? What made it loving and intimate for us? I said, oh, man, I love God. What started that? God did. He loved first. It's because He first loved us. It's because He showed up. It's because he had taken them out of Egypt. It's because he spoke. It's because he declared, I am your God. That's what made it personal. That's what made it intimate. Now, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because see what you didn't see in Exodus 20. It didn't say God spoke and he told the people that if they would keep all the Ten Commandments, that he would love them. Didn't say that. That's not in the Bible. And yet that's the way some people live. That I believe if I will do these good things, if I will keep these commands, that somehow God will look at me and love me. That's a lie. From the pit of hell. Nowhere does the Bible say God's going to love you because you chose to be good. God loves us first. Didn't have to. Chose to. Show up, speak, and declare a personal relationship with us. And when you see the intimacy of that, you say, God, that is unbelievable. How can I love you? How can I return grace and love? And then you see, the Ten Commandments is the tool that fits the bill. It's like, wow, this is four ways I can love my God and four ways I can love His, five ways, six ways I can love His people. I've got to be able to count, right? There's ten commands. But the commands have nothing to do with earning the love. Therefore, maintaining a loving relationship. I remember uh, when I saw my wife for the first time. She came, small college, small class. I can still see this day her come through the door of the lobby that goes to the cafeteria. It was her and another beautiful brunette. Two ladies came to town same day come through the door, and you know, the room's got about this many people in it, and we all look and like, whoa, what just walked in? And I immediately 
thought to myself, I'll probably never speak to this woman. Out of the two brunettes, I particularly like one. Immediately. I said, probably never speak to this woman. Because I, I knew from conversations I had heard that her righteous character and her beauty were just way out of my league. That kind of woman doesn't speak to me. And so, you know, I, as I would see her in the hall, after, hey, how you doing? You know, you know. Just a little courtesy greeting. That's as far as it went for three, four months. And then one day I was teaching a Bible study at college. And the class, my study, my class was over. And this woman comes walking to me. No one else there, you know. It's like, hey, David, how you doing? She probably said, how you doing? You know. <laughs> I immediately knew those were not casual words. She didn't have to come to my Bible study. She didn't have to come up and speak with me. Those were words of intimacy. That changed everything. And that led to love. And that led to marriage. And that led to a beautiful life together. And it started with a choice. It didn't start with her following a certain set of rules to win my love. It started with a choice to choose a relationship. When you go to a wedding ceremony, you know, the preacher says... Uh, do you, you know, looks at the man, do you, give, do you um, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And she says, I do, I will. Do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? I will, I do. It's a choice. I, I will make that choice. I promise that choice. The maintenance of that marriage happens after the choice. And the maintenance, happen, maintenance happens through the rules, through the commands. But they don't earn you that place in the relationship. That's graciously given to us by our God. Do you ever wonder if God is yours, intimate with you? It's his choice. If he's made that choice, you hear his voice, you hear his word, why worry? Why fear? He's, he is here for us, and God wants us to know it. If we're in trouble, He wants us to know it, that He can take care of all troubles. He can take care of our worry. He can take care of whatever, because He's ours, and we're His. Now, one more thing. Not only is... A relationship with God intense and should be. The nature of it defines that. Not only is it intimate, His choice for us, our response to that choice, but there's an incumbency here that might be confusing, but it doesn't need to be confusing. We're letting Satan twist the words and make the, world, the, the rules, the commands, something we need to do to earn what we've just talked about. And we see that's not the way the text reads. But there is an incumbency that we are incumbent upon 
God to, to respond. Strange words, like I said. Why, why say these words? If, if you were an Israelite, why say these words? How could you have missed the ten plagues in Egypt? Plague after plague after plague where God is making a distinction. You could look out through the land. Why is it happening to all these Egyptians, these plagues, and not ha happening to the Jews? Plague after plague after plague. They begin to see God divide two nations. One is loved and one is not. They saw that happening. How could they not remember? How could they ever forget the death angel as it flies over Egypt? And the firstborn cow and dog, and goat, and cat, and person dies as that angel flies. And every household began to grieve and weep and mourn. But the Jews walked out of their tent, their camp, where they had been told to take a hyssop branch and dip it in blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost. Who could see that blood at night? The death angel could. God can. Heaven can. A sign from God, leave that house without harm. How could they ever forget that? Could. It's unforgettable. And then they get to the, the Red Sea. And it's so enormous and wide and deep. And, and they look behind them, and the Egyptian soldiers and their chariots and horsemen are coming their direction. What in the world are we going to do? And the water opens up. It goes back to the next city, the scripture says. Stacks the water up. And like a heat lamp or something, hits the mud just completely dry. So they can walk across and then from there safely to Sinai. Who did all of this? They knew Moses didn't do these things. This was God. God had bought them. God had brought them. God made the way in the wilderness. God redeemed them from death and slavery and bondage. Would it not then be incumbent upon us to say, I owe you. How can I repay you? How can I thank you? How can I be rightly responsive? I don't need you, do I? Do I need a reminder that God has done all of these things? And yet that's what God gives. He gives this reminder, and as I read it, it's like the command, you know, somebody says, needless to say, and then they say it anyway, and it's like, I don't have to say this, surely, but then he says it anyway, and, and that seems to be confusing to a lot of people. Let me show you an example of it. Look at Philemon. 
17, and 19, 17 through 19. Philemon's a one-page book in the Bible. You find it after Titus and before Hebrews. And Philemon's is a story where the Apostle Paul is writing a letter back to Philemon and asking Philemon to uh, let him pay all of the debt of Onesimus and let Onesimus come and do ministry with Paul. That's basically the story. But notice how Paul describes the situation. Philemon, verse 19, uh, or 17 through 19. So if you consider me your partner, this is Paul writing to Philemon, receive him, that's Onesimus, as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all who, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. In other words, I'll pay for it. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. In other words, nobody's forcing this. It's not a trick for Onesimus. Onesimus is not getting out of anything. You can check my handwriting. I will repay it to say nothing. Here's the phrase. To say nothing of you owing me even your own self. It's like, well, if you don't need to say it, why did you just say it? And then verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. When we, we make these kind of statements, needless to say, really don't have to say this, surely. And then we go ahead and say what we said was needless, we weren't going to say. It's a rhetorical device. It's what a speaker does to try to grab your attention, like surely you remember these things. Everyone knows these things. Shouldn't have to say them. But for the sake of the argument, let me say them. And it just grabs your attention. They're saying it to remind me I do owe them. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He said, I don't need to say this, do it, but you owe me. Even your own Self. Now, this phrase that, yes, brother, I, I, you know, I say nothing of you owing me, even your own self. So somehow, whatever Philemon owes Paul, we don't know other than that. Paul somehow saved his life. You owe me yourself, your life. And some people think, well, what Philemon owed is Paul was the one who shared the gospel with Philemon, and Philemon came to faith in Christ through Paul's preaching and teaching or personal sharing, and so he owes him. He would not be saved. He wouldn't be in this condition if it had not been for the apostle Paul. Well, that makes sense, except that it's contrary to all the rest of Scripture. Nowhere does the Bible say the person who shares with you the good news of Christ, you owe them your life. That's not what Scripture teaches. We don't owe man our life. We owe God. And the Apostle Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, when I came to town, I plant. I plant the seed of God's word. Apollos came along behind me, and he watered. He says, but God did the saving. God caused the increase. People don't save other people. God saves other people. We owe our salvation to God, not to the preacher. Philemon owed Paul something. Maybe Paul bought Philemon out of slavery. Onesimus is obviously a slave in this passage. 
And he was probably an indentured servant. In other words, you get to a place in life where you say, I, can, I know I owe you, but I can't afford to pay you. I don't have the resources, so I'll work for you. I'll be your servant. And you would call somebody like that, that's my slave. They're an indentured servant. Paul is willing to pay all the debt for Onesimus and get him out of that indenturedness that he's in. Maybe he's already done that for Philemon and thereby saving his life from that uh, prison that he was in. We don't know. We just know it's incumbent upon Philemon to do what Paul is asking because he wants a benefit. He is not enforcing payment. He's not saying, Philemon, I did something for you, and now I'm come for my payment. He didn't say that. He didn't say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to require you to pay me back. No enforcement of payment is, is, is being pushed. He just said, you owe me. I, I don't think I need to remind you of that. It was pretty significant. I do want a benefit. I don't want payment. I just want you to know it's incumbent upon you to help me now by sending Onesimus to be with me in ministry. Just incumbent. And I'll give you even more money than maybe I've already given you. I'll pay all of his debts. I'll take care of the finance. I need this. And it's incumbent upon you now. Take that thought back to Exodus 20. When you have the same kind of language, this rhetorical device that I don't need to say it, all of you certainly remember it. But I say it anyway. Because we need this constant reminder that even though God does not enforce payment, He never says, I saved you, I bought you out of slavery, and so therefore you need to do X, Y, Z and pay me back. Never says that. He says, I'm yours. You're mine. That's settled. You have received a huge benefit. Our natural response, it's incumbent upon us to respond and say, what can I do in this relationship? It's as simple as this. It's incumbent upon, if we have been regenerated, it's incumbent upon a regenerate person to have regenerate values. If God has given me new ears to hear His voice and new eyes to see His path, it is incumbent upon me to hear His voice and to follow His ways. To say it like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 30, he says, You have been bought with a price Therefore, and the word therefore is it's incumbent that, you have been bought with a price, it's incumbent that you glorify God with your body. That's the therefore. You've been bought with a price, therefore, keep these ten. This will maintain our love with God and with man. It's just a very normal response that a saved person would live a saved life. And the glory of, of God's grace to us to never say, 
and this will be your payment. He never enforces payment. But it's incumbent upon us to see the great grace and respond in grace to him. Look at Jude 5. Some of the people in Israel didn't do it. They didn't respond as God wanted them to respond. And let me show it to you in the book of Jude. Again, one page book of the Bible. This one's right before the book of Revelation. Jude 5. It says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt... So Jesus was there. He was saving them out of Egypt. Afterwards, destroyed those. Which ones did he destroy? Not the ones who didn't do the payment. Payment's not mentioned. He destroyed those who did not believe. Those who didn't have faith. Those who didn't trust Christ alone for their salvation. How did the people in Israel get saved? Same way we do. By faith in Christ. Some of them did not want to trust Christ as their Lord. As the one speaking. Some of them wanted to keep running the other way. They did not believe in Christ as their Savior and Lord. And they were destroyed. The same is true for us. It's incumbent. If God comes to you and you hear his voice and you hear that he wants a personal relationship with you, it's incumbent that you believe in him, that you trust him, that you accept all that he brings to you and that you come back to him with, Lord, let me glorify you and honor you and adore you. Nothing like this ever happens to someone like me. Uh, there's more but let me, let me just finish with this I've, I've had people come to me and say David I appreciate your emphasis on the Ten Commandments I've tried the Ten Commandments they don't work I just want you to know and I said no, 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 no. the problem is not with the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments do work nowhere does it say you keep the Ten Commandments to make it work so you, you, you've got it mixed up the problem is not with the Ten Commandments. The problem is with your heart. You don't have a heart for God. Until you have a heart for God, until you trust Christ to be your Lord, till you believe in Him alone, your heart does not have the substance that enables you to keep the commands. He fills your heart, with, makes your heart new with His Spirit, gives you the gifts of faith and repentance, which is the substance of a new heart so that you can turn from sin and do the commands. He causes you. The law becomes a part of your heart when you have a new heart. The problem is not the commands. The problem is our heart, that we must trust Christ for a new heart. And Lord, I've never been able to keep your commands. And God says, yeah, I know. They're impossible without my grace. I'm desperate for Jesus. I need you to give me a new heart. It's incumbent upon me to respond. And I can't respond without faith in Christ. I cannot. I must have that. Let's pray together. Father, 
Help us to see that meeting you is a terrifying thing and only possible when someone stands between us and you. That one we need is Jesus. Lord, we trust Jesus to be our mediator, to take your wrath poured out upon sin, to grant us faith that you are our God. You love us. You want, only want us to act as your loving, regenerate, responsive children. Father, let us do so. May the Ten Commands become just a great tool we delight in. May we delight in the law of your word. Find it to be sweet and pure, tried and perfect. We ask, O Father, that for anyone here lacking faith in Christ, from the littlest to the oldest, you would grant them to see, even now, a relationship with you cannot happen without faith in Christ. And that they would cry out, that you would grant them this faith, that they might know you and the wonder of your ways. Thank you, Lord, for your word spoken today. In Jesus' name, amen.